This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 28th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, the 28th of January. It's nearly over. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Vincent McAvinney. We'll hear how the pandemic impacted on the cultural sphere. And Andrew Muller gives us his take on the last seven days. We learned this week that wine is bad for you. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. First, though, here's the news. Palestinian gunmen killed seven people and wounded three others in a synagogue on the outskirts of Jerusalem on Friday in an attack that heightened fears of a spiral in bloodshed a day after the deadliest Israeli raid in the West Bank in years. Authorities in New Zealand's biggest city, Auckland, began mopping up today after torrential rains brought flash flooding and evacuations, with at least two people confirmed dead and two missing in the widespread inundation. A state of emergency remained in place in the city of 1.6 million people on New Zealand's North Island as the rains eased after Friday's flooding in the north, northwest and west. Two Indian Air Force fighter jets crashed in Madhya Pradesh state and the neighbouring desert state of Rajasthan, local officials said today. Two of the three crew members from one jet were rescued while no details were released on the crew of the second plane. And Lunar New Year holiday trips inside China surged 74% from last year after authorities scrapped COVID-19 curbs that had stifled travel for three years, local media reported today. An estimated 226 million domestic trips were made during the holiday week, according to government figures. In the last Lunar New Year holiday before the coronavirus emerged in late 2019, some 420 million trips were made internally. As for travel abroad, inbound and outbound cross-border trips jumped 120.5% from last year to 2.88 million, but down from 12.53 million pre-pandemic. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, joining me in the studio is Vincent McAvinney, a political reporter and a Monocle 24 regular and sometime occupant of this chair. Welcome Good back. morning, yes. <laughs> it's quite nice to do the swap over sometimes. It is, it? yeah. 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 Um, Vinny, it's the 28th of January. Aren't you glad? It's nearly over. <laughs> nearly over, yeah. I think we were sort of lulled into a false sense at the start of this year because the first two weeks was like, oh, it's a bit warm, it's quite sunny, there was no wind and rain, but the last two weeks, in the UK at least, have been pretty, pretty grim. Absolutely, pretty grim. Very grim news coming out of the United States. Let's let's look at the story briefly. It's it's deeply mm. upsetting. This yeah, I feel like time. we can't sort of avoid avoid it today, but we will try and yeah. yeah breeze through it. So it's a story about a young man called uh, Tyree Nichols who, on the seventh of January, after having been to the local skate park that he went to regularly and seemingly have done nothing wrong, he was stopped by a group of police officers who behaved. When you watch the video from their body cam in an unexplainable and incredibly aggressive way towards this young man, getting him out of the car, getting him down onto the ground, uh, 
pointing tasers at his back, being very sort of abusive towards him to the point where this, this young man just starts to fear and you can see the panic in his eyes and he just runs from them because he keeps saying, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? And they just don't answer him. Uh, a little while later, another group of police officers managed to catch him uh, and they uh, get him to the ground. They... Uh, beat him effectively uh, to death. He he then is sort of lifted into a car. Other officers are watching around, standing, not calling for help, not calling for assistance. There's a big delay in the ambulance coming. Uh, and a few days later, this young man tragically died. But th- this video is being all the way up to President Joe Biden, public authorities and the young man's family are trying to call for calm in the inevitable protest. But it's it's revealing because the five officers who have been charged with a number of crimes, in, including uh, this, including the second, I think second degree murder, um, are all African American themselves, like this young man. So it's quite a different dimension. Uh, you know, immediately you think of the likes of Rodney King back in in the early nineties and the LA riots that kicked off, and you think about. Um, the events that took place, uh, several of them during during the sort of pandemic, uh, George Floyd in particular, where it was white officers. Uh, but this is something quite different. And it's asking questions, I think, about the pervasiveness of a certain culture in US policing uh, and how toxic it has become. Absolutely. And and the, the video footage itself is just awful to watch. Mm. Uh, and um, I can't understand. And, uh, something that journalists do, I'm, I'm not sure if you have done it, there's, there's, a, there's a fake town in Gravesend in the UK. It's a training town for police. And you go down there as a journalist to do a training course in civil uh, civil um, disturbance. And it's sort of like full on high street. There's a, a mini section of a stadium. There's a train station with a tube car, old tube car in it. And you do all these exercises with police. And, and older police officers play sort of rioters and, and people kind of misbehaving. Younger police officers are being trained. And then they bring journalists in at the same time. To, so you practice covering it and, and watching your, your flanks and all this kind of stuff but one of the things that they do to you and i think you know yes there's huge problems in british policing in terms of the vetting of people getting in right now in terms of their conduct i mean it, they are very good at de-escalating and that is their core philosophy in every scenario and that's what they were teaching us about and for us as well dealing with people increasingly who are social journalists it's all about de-escalating de-escalating things not you know trying to get into fights with people trying to just get your space walk away and i just watching this video i just can't understand how these guys have ever been trained to handle a a stopover of someone like this in in a vehicle quite extraordinary. Uh, Somewhere where, of course, it's not de-escalating is Ukraine. Uh, Just continues to intensify there. Uh, Now, tanks finally, Leopard 2 tanks have finally been approved. Germany will send them. Other countries now have carte blanche to go ahead. Just before we get on to what the next step is, I've interestingly heard a few people uh, refer to them as Leopard tanks. Yeah, I have as well. Yes. I'm not quite sure which Is that the German way, perhaps? Maybe it is the German way. Leopard. It does sound rather nice, doesn't it? It it does. Leopard. And I understand lots of people in Ukraine are wearing leopard print at the moment. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyway, Ukraine's now calling for fighter jets. Yeah, this call came very quickly in President Zelensky's nightly address on his uh, birthday when this tank decision was was finally made earlier in the week. He did immediately say, we need long-range ra- uh, rockets and we need jets as well. Now, the long-range rockets issue... That one, they've been Western powers have been reluctant to give those because Ukraine could simply park them, and then one fear is that they could then just fire them directly into Russia, and they could strike Russian cities. And obviously, Ukraine have, have had some attempts at striking 
Russian targets uh, with over the border. They've done this with sort of quite cheap, sort of rudimentary drones, we think. Uh, and and you know, but there hasn't been that many incidents of it. But it would be very different if they had rockets that could could reach in. It would really then start to escalate things. But the the jet thing. I mean, this goes back right to almost a year ago. Now the very start of this, the few jets that Ukraine had, the the pilots fought valiantly. Uh, they were calling at the time for a no fly zone where sort of. We, that was what happened in the Gulf in in the early '90s, where anything flying over would have been shot down by missiles, sort of parked by perhaps NATO allies on on the borders in, in Poland or whatever. That was never allowed because that again thought if if NATO's shooting down or, or allies are shooting down. Russian rockets, then that brings us fully into the war. But they, they've continued to call for jets to be delivered and, and they've renewed that call strongly. Now, it's gone down slightly differently. What they're asking for is not top-of-the-range jets. They're asking for something that a lot of countries are doing. So lots of countries are phasing out their older jets, particularly F-16s, uh, countries like the Netherlands, countries like France, it's Mirage jet. Um, they, they're about to sort of do a once-in-a-generation changeover. So there is an opportunity here uh, to sort of give stock that you don't need to Ukraine in order in order to fight this. The, the reaction, though, has been slightly different. The US has sort of played it down. Uh, Schultz, uh, uh, Chancellor Schultz and his remarks sound a bit annoyed that having just got to the point of giving them tanks, he's already being asked to pass on jets. But other countries, uh, Mark Rutte of the Netherlands, uh, sounding sort of more game for potentially going this way. I think it depends what we see in the next few weeks, how big the build-up is for a, a new Russian push, what kind of assets they deploy. But you do have to wonder, you know, if you if you gave tanks already and you were giving, you know, F-16s are sort of, they're not sort of as I understand it from the way the Times written, they're not sort of, you can have them so they're not sort of bombers that go into countries and are dropping on towns. They are air-to-air missiles normally attached to them. So it'd be fighting off other fighter jets. And if you did give these to Ukraine and you've made it very clear, use them in your own airspace. Mm. And then, defence rather than and attack. And defence yeah. rather than attack. Then really, what's the difference between mm. these, these and tanks? Yeah. Now, of course, Ukrainians who can, many Ukrainians who can, have left. Uh, and... Uh, some have turned up in rural Ireland. Tell us more about this. This is a really fascinating long read story uh, in the London Times this morning in the magazine. And um, it's called uh, They Left Kiev and Ended Up in Connemara. This is what happened next. And it looks at uh, one family, but also a couple of the other families that are around them uh, who were evacuated. Ireland is a population of, of five million people. But it still took in around 70,000 Ukrainian refugees last year. When you consider the UK uh, took in around 120,000, but has a population of about 65 million. Mm. You know, Ireland really did sort of play its part. But there have been issues. Now, it follows this family and they are, you know, really rural. They're in an area called the Gale Talked. It's, it's mostly where people actually speak Gaelish. Gaelic is their first language on the west coast of America, uh, of Ireland, on the thing called the Wild Atlantic Way, which is really popular with walkers and things. Now, what's happened here is they've gone into this small, very small community. They're around, uh, in a hotel of 25 rooms, there are around sort of 20 uh, or so families living in this hotel. Some other properties nearby have also sort of been commandeered for them. And they've reinvigorated the local community. Uh, the 
you know, there was a talk about the pub couldn't find a chef. They couldn't get someone to come out and live there. Uh, they couldn't find hospitality staff. These Ukrainians are all working in the different bits of hospitality. Uh, their children are going to the nurseries and schools, some of which were on the verge of closure because they simply didn't have enough uh, children going to them. Uh, and it's, you know, they're there waiting it out. But they, the locals say that, you know, that it's revived them. And, and they've set up things like they have, you know, a cafe club on a Saturday morning in the, in the main dining room of the hotel where people sort of do a bring and buy uh, to raise money for Ukraine war efforts and other Irish charities and it's a bake sale and you know it, so- it sounds it sounds quite a lovely spot to have to wait this out very remote but it's about how in small communities it's, it's been great to you know probably small communities as many people know are probably the people that fear most the, the outside world because their prism is through a, a sometimes skewed media lens and not actual content Contact. Whereas in cities, Ireland has a huge uh, housing issue. Uh, you know, in Dublin, it's it, there's incredible. It's, it's every now and again, you see a property comes online for rent, and you get sort of queues around the block of people trying to to view it. Uh, there's a massive housing crisis there, in part the legacy of the 2008 crash. And there have actually though been a bit of a turn towards Ukrainians coming about the fact they were given sort of instant access to the uh, Irish full Irish benefits and employment rights without any way of means testing people as to whether or not they needed the particularly the sort of the money as well but also the fact that they're you know the rush to house them when many Irish people themselves can't get housed and they're living uh, very cramped in, in properties uh, that you know should only have two or three people whereas it's ending up with six or seven people in them mm, but um, as you say um, Connemara what a lovely place to yeah to the, wait the bulk the of the article talks about the sort of the yeah. rural communities and it is it is fascinating you know these are these are very small irish communities they'll tend to skew a little bit older maybe uh but you know they, they've taken these people in according to these articles Benny, thank you very much do stay with us because we'll return to the front pages in a little while meanwhile though here's andrew muller with what we learned this week lately drinking warm red wine is all i want to do We learned this week that wine is bad for you. Sorry, Farron. But I don't care. We'll need some grim, abstemious chanting instead. We learned that wine is bad for you from Ireland, which plans to add health warnings to the labels on wine bottles, assuming it can find any room amid all the usual twaddle about ripe raspberry red fruit flavours with a touch of peppery spice on a well-balanced fruit-driven palate with a refined tannin structure and soft, subtle French oak characters. And we are genuinely reading that off the back of the first random bottle we plucked from the rack. bit early, but okay. We did learn, in fairness, that Ireland also proposes adding such cautions to spirits and beer, but we learned that it was vastly funnier to concentrate on the wine aspect because we learned this had prompted a richly entertaining Irish-Italian diplomatic stramash. We learned that Italy was choosing to take this personally, and the dudgeon of Italy's foreign minister will now be rendered by Monocle's Italian dudgeon desk chief, Chiara Ramella. This is an attack on the Mediterranean diet, which is a fundamental part of our economy. It is also part of our identity, and our identity cannot be perverted. We further learned that a spokesperson for Italy's biggest farmers association wanted to know if anybody else fancied some of this. 
It is completely improper to equate the excessive consumption of spirits, typical of the Nordic countries, to the moderate and conscious consumption of quality products with lower alcohol, such as wine. We now pause to offer right of reply to this outrageous and provocative traducing of Scandinavian sobriety to Monocle's Finnish indifference desk chief, Marcus Hippie. I simply don't care about any of this. More as we have it. Sticking with Scandinavia, we learn that Sweden's Prime Minister, possibly after... Excessive consumption of spirits, typical of the Nordic countries... Who knows, had become embroiled in a splendidly Scandinavian scandal, misleading police about the illegal eel fishing activities of a recently hired advisor. And yes, we have shoehorned this one into the monologue, just to suggest that as his Italian antagonists might put it, that's amore. But we learned that Ulf Christensen, we're going to save the one about the difficulties of assembling a Swedish cabinet for next time, was not the only current or former national leader making dubious claims pertaining to outdoor recreation. We learned that former US President Donald Trump had been playing golf, which is hardly news in itself, but that he was advancing his golfing prowess as proof of his fitness to govern, specifically as he informed the dozens of users of his social media platform Truth Social that he had won the senior championship at Trump International Golf Club. We learned, however, when we diligently cross-referenced the dates of said tournament with Trump's schedule, or to be honest, read chortling articles by newspapers which had done all the work for us, that Trump's claim upon the trophy was arguably somewhat undermined by the fact that on the first day of competition he had been roughly 965 kilometres away at another thing entirely. We learned basically that promising new Republican Congressman George Santos, if that is his real name, etc., prodigiously fabulizing star of several recent and likely future of these monologues, is going to have to up his game, possibly by climbing Everest blindfolded again. But we learned that Trump and Santos's fellow conservatives had more pressing, by which, to be clear, we mean more insane concerns. Woke M&M's have returned. The green M&M got her boots back, but apparently is now a lesbian, maybe. And there's also a plus-sized, obese, purple M&M. So we're going to cover that, of course. I'm worried about you. I think this is the kind of thing that makes China say, like, oh, good, keep focusing on that. Yeah. Keep focusing yeah. on giving people their own color M&M's uh, while we, you know, take over all of the mineral deposits in the entire world. We learned, however, that these forces of righteousness had claimed a tremendous victory as M&M's announced that they would retire their affrontingly inclusive cartoon candies. However, we learned that no sooner is one battle won in America's culture wars than another front opens, as we learned of a new crusade to remove trousers from a cartoon bear. Finally, there is this. First, it was M&M's. Now it's root beer. Rudy the Great Root Bear. He serves as the mascot of A&W restaurants. He's now going to be wearing pants. Apparently, according to the company, Rudy's lack of pants was quite polarizing, they say. This is the woke police cancel culture has gone it's just ridiculous. Which, we learned, became all the more amusing, yet more pathetic, when A&W subsequently announced that they'd been making a joke, 
at the expense, one assumes, of opinion-honking blowhards who could be relied upon to take it seriously. Unless, of course, A&W had actually been serious, but were now furiously backtracking after being besieged online by angry morons. It is so very hard to tell nowadays. I know right. And we learned that none of this matters anyway because we're all doomed, even more than usual. We learned this from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, attention-seeking nerds who traditionally pop up just as everyone's New Year hangovers are ebbing, brandishing their big doomsday clock. Today, the members of the Science and Security Board move the hands of the doomsday clock forward. This year we learned the friendless Poindexters had decided it was 90 seconds to midnight, apparently the closest we have been to Apocalypse since. The lonely dweebs started pestering everybody with this nonsense back in 1947, and they said it like it was a bad thing. So in its ad campaigns, Mars set about making its M&M characters as unattractive as possible because when you're intentionally repulsive, it's clear you've got the right politics. So the green M&M lost her sexy boots, the brown M&M her stiletto heels. The orange M&M, meanwhile, became a poster boy for the mental health crisis and would henceforth, quote, acknowledge and embrace his anxiety because America badly needs more neurotic candy. Then late last year, Mars went further. The company added obese and distinctly frumpy lesbian M&Ms to promote, quote, feminism and body positivity. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew Miller. Uh, are you body positive? I mean, if you want to see some body, body positivity, that was Tucker Carlson of Fox News at the end. I, I recommend looking up his time on Dancing on the Stars on uh, YouTube. He had a, I think he was voted out on week one when he was between jobs, when he got fired from CNN. But it is some of the worst body dancing that you've ever seen. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Um, Andrew, obviously freshly back from Australia. He's lucky because if he was in Western Australia right now, he might come across a radioactive capsule. Yes. <laughs> this story is I'm really fascinated. So this is a capsule about the size, I think, of a paracetamol pill. It's a silver cylinder containing cesium-137, which is used in mining operations. Now, somehow... On the transport on an 870-mile stretch of road in Western Australia on the way to Perth, this capsule's container's broken and the capsule has dropped onto the floor of the lorry and then dropped through a hole and they believe onto the road somewhere. And they're saying that it could cause serious health consequences People are being urged not to pick up the capsule if they spot it, but also they've driven this road to check their tyres to see it's so small it could fit in the little gaps uh, in the tread in the tyre, uh, and it could cause severe illness. Now, someone standing within a metre of the cylinder, they say, could expect to receive radiation equivalent to 10 X-rays or the amount of natural radiation a body's exposed to in a year. It would cause sickness and burns. So this is a really, you know, nefarious... Uh, this is really nefarious radioactive material. I think it begs questions as to why was it being carried so so poorly? Absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I'm talking the, about needle in the haystack exactly, as well, trying to find it. Trying yeah. to find it out there. Um, now, of course, this week um, we've had a Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, I marked it by going to see a film called Safer in Silence, which is by my cousin Corinne Chateau. And uh, it's about how many people lie about their Jewish roots because they're very afraid that it's going to happen mm. again, as indeed happened in my own family, and which is what the film's about. Um, 
And the, there's a wonderful story here from the Miami Herald um, about a Holocaust survivor because, of course, they are, they are getting older and older and, and mm. soon there will be none left. Uh, t- tell us more about this story. Yeah, and this is coming out because yesterday, of course, was uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. It's about a 93-year-old man called uh, David Schechter. Uh, he has lived in Miami for seven decades, and that's because he spent his teens uh, in four different concentration camps. Uh, and he had, uh, you know, an absolutely uh, apparent... Uh, terrible time. Uh, He lost pretty much all of his family. He lost his parents. He lost his sister. He lost his brother. So at 15 years old, he was simply uh, alone in the world. Uh, And he was in the likes of Auschwitz and Birkenau. Uh, So, uh, you know, an incredible story of survival for him, but a life really kind of gripped in tragedy. But he moved to America in the 1950s. He studied industrial engineering, set up his own company, built a life, had a family uh, and moved on. But he thinks it's so important to keep telling his story. Some people simply can't, that it's too painful. But he's going to do something very special. He's sitting for uh, a capture for creating a hologram that will live on beyond his death. And he isn't just sort of sitting there and telling his story. He's answering almost a thousand questions so that in uh, 2025, the hologram, which will be put in a uh, in Holocaust museums in the United States, he will. If you entered the room, you would see a projection of him sitting in the chair, and you could ask him questions, and he will just respond to you. There are so they've selected the questions, the the ones that they think people are most likely to ask about the details of his time. But they're also it's an interesting little detail. They are asking him sort of questions that children normally ask adults, like how old are you? What's your favorite color? So this will be a really immersive way of hearing from someone about the Holocaust, because we all know too well, even in this day and age, there is still far too much denial. Still being allowed rampantly on social media platforms. Uh, Twitter, I saw, was in trouble this week in Germany for allowing uh, posts to remain up, which were reported in breach of its laws, denying the Holocaust. Uh, And so what's interesting about this is I, I remember filming a piece five, six years ago. They did a project in Britain to capture interviews with survivors who obviously in a decades or so time, there might be only a handful left given their ages. Uh, And they were recording them just as videos, but doing it in 4K uh, and doing it at length to have this sort of testament for the future. But I think doing it like this, where if you walked in and and saw this person and and spoke to them, it's a really good idea because like you just mentioned about your family story, I've spoken to a member of family who went in to a Auschwitz in the liberation of it and he's told me about what it was like to go in and what they found and that they had simply had no idea what they were going into and it's the, he said it was the most shocking haunting moment of his life and when you hear first hand testimony that was from you know from someone I know and trust and and you know, it it vividly makes me so angry whenever I see or hear Holocaust denial uh, that there are still people alive who not only experienced it but that people had to go in and witness and and help people afterwards um, and and they're denying and you know and they're effectively calling them all, all liars. So I think this is a really good idea to create uh, these holograms. Maybe it's something that you know we need to look at doing in Europe as well, where mm. you can interact with survivors. Yeah, there's a really really fantastic book called The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland. The um, the Guardian journalist. Mm. And it's about the only two Jews who broke out of Auschwitz. Uh, and it's just the most incredible story. Oh, wow. Uh, how they broke out, the patience it took, but then how how they tried to warn the world. And the, it takes up one man's story, Ru- Ru- Rudy Verber's story in particular. 
and not a lot of people were listening. You know, no. I mean, eventually they did, and they did manage to save some people. But but more could have been saved if people had sort of t- read what he was saying or, or taken the meeting and everything. Mm. But it's a really really great book. I can't recommend it highly enough. It was on our shortlist for the for the Bailey Gifford Prize. Um, it's called The Escape Artist. Now speaking of books, I was one of those nerdy children that always wanted to hang out in the library. The librarian was my best friend, the only person that I really, the only teacher really that I kind of wanted wanted to be near at school mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's true of very many school librarians yeah. yeah and and bookish children it's yeah. it's your place of safety isn't it yeah definitely and you know they're always when you go into those spaces I, I have the weird thing because of the work I do at sort of general correspondent about once a month I end up back in a school uh, and they, they sort of smell the same and they ha- you see the same displays but normally we always do interviews with, with teachers or pupils or whoever it is in the school library because uh, it's a, a quiet spot to, to do them and you just see these wonderful displays you see books you remember of childhood that you, you've forgotten about and often you know there is a there is a, a, a sort of lovely children's librarian uh, who really cares about getting kids into books I think that's the image that most people have. But sadly, this story, which is in the Los Angeles Times, is about how many of them uh, in conservative states in particular, but in in blue states as well, where you've got sort of these active sort of right wing groups uh, have been turned into town uh, villains who are being described as groomers and paedophiles for stocking certain books. These right-wing groups uh, are sort of uh, right-wing mums groups are circulating lists of books that they say they should go in and check if their children's library has, demand that they're removed, and if not, launch campaigns against the librarians. To the point where, you know, these librarians, some of them have been, signs have been made about them in people's lawns, accusing them of being Satanists, accusing them of of grooming children, uh, and their lives are being made in absolute misery. And these are people who, you know, are are smart, are well-read, are doing a job that's not that well-paid paid often um, but they love books and they want children to read and yet they're just being absolutely abused for simply having well-stocked libraries quite extraordinary isn't it um yeah i mean talking of well-stocked libraries did you see that pile of books outside? i did see it yes <laughs> so that's what we'll be wading through after this to, just to try and make some decisions about what's going to be on meet the writers but i can tell you that tomorrow it's cal flynn and she's written this wonderful book called I've... islands of abandonment Have yeah you... my, well i know her, my first ever newsroom i was her intern <laughs> at the sunday times in 2011 and she's gone on to have this extraordinary career yeah her wonderful book the the islands of abandonment yeah. she's a fantastic journalist and writer she really is and the book is all about sort of what happens when the humans leave like about slag heaps or whatever mm. just all these different places and it's and she was in fact sunday times young writer of, of the year i yeah. think last year amazing amazing book. anyway that's on meet the writers tomorrow uh, but now let's have a look at what's happening uh in culture in the u.s right after this break Vinny, before we go there let me just say thank you so much for being with it was me. lovely to be back on a saturday it's been too long Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead, from a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
role of arts and culture in our communities is something that's evolved over the past few years. Concert halls and museums sought new ways to bring performances and exhibitions into our homes during the pandemic. And now the question is what kind of mark the pandemic has left on the arts community and its role in our lives going forward. Monocle's Washington correspondent was at the US Conference of Mayors winter meeting last week and he spoke to Dr Maria Rosario Jackson, chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, the chief cultural agency of the US government. She began by describing the agency's mission and how it's changed under her leadership. So the mission of the National Endowment for the Arts is to make sure that all people in the United States have access to the arts. We support a range of arts experiences, organizations, and uh, programs. And under my leadership a year in, one shift, not in mission so much, but I think maybe in interpretation of mission for now, has to do with an expansive notion of arts, culture, and design. I've been talking about the idea of artful lives and uh, how that range of opportunities to have creative expression as part of your daily lived experience, all of these different ways that we engage uh, art and creative process, that, that's something that we support and think is part of equitable places where all pe- people can thrive. I think maybe another emphasis, let's say, in in my leadership has to do with lifting up the really important work that happens at the intersection of arts and other fields, like education, health, community development, uh, transportation. My background's urban planning, so I take this more comprehensive notion. I believe that the things that we say we want to accomplish as a nation, we really can't do without the integration of arts, culture, and design. And if we don't figure out how to do that kind of integration better, we'll stay stuck. So I'm excited about what the National Endowment for the Arts can do. There's a lot of interest in cities and communities. Some of the programs that the NEA has built over the years are intended to bolster the impact of the arts at the local level. One of them is the Mayor's Institute on City Design, collaboration with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And I'm very excited about what that program has been able to accomplish over the years, as well as where it may go next and how other resources that are in it or adjacent to it can help further our work in cities. We're in this post-pandemic moment, which it does feel like quite a pivotal moment, also speaking to mayors here. Everyone is kind of reimagining what our cities are, what our downtowns are like, what makes up a community. And, you know, one of your mantras is this idea that the arts are critical to healthy communities. Mm -hmm. And so just tell me a little more about how you actually see us redefining the role of particularly the arts in communities after the pandemic. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is, is important to continue to lift up is what I said earlier, that we have to have this broad interpretation of what constitutes our cultural life that includes 
things that are everyday and quotidian even, but deeply meaningful and impactful, as well as the things that people more readily imagine when someone says, what, what, is, you know, what is the feature of art or culture in a city? And they'll think about important presenting venues, right? Whether they're concert halls or museums or what have you. Those are still critically important. I think alongside that, we have to think about our personal and communal creative lives and active arts engagement. So the act of making, the act of learning. So I think it's important post-pandemic, especially as we're trying to deal with not just economic revitalization, but the effects of isolation in some cases, mental health issues, when we're concerned about the fabric of our, our social fabric, right? And, and our ability to feel like we belong or, or can connect to understand the role of the arts broadly defined in relation to those aspirations and goals is really important. And that's different from only thinking about the arts as an economic driver, let's say, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is important to be sure. But I think we also have to understand the value of the arts in relation to our health and well-being, both individually and collectively. And all of that is amplified right now as, as we emerge or re-emerge. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in practice for you? Does that mean you, you kind of talked about museums, concert halls as, as venues, but does it mean in that sense that you have to bring art directly into communities more? I, I wonder if that's part of the, I think that's the change part of it. today. I think that's part of it, but I also am really inspired when I go around the country and I see how people's thinking about how to use their physical spaces has evolved. When you couldn't have crowds, you had to think about how do you program outside if that was an option, right? Or how do you reimagine space such that it could conform to health codes? And I think that there, there was a lot of experimentation and piloting of new ways of thinking about arts participation that have legs and utility beyond a pandemic state, right? So you're seeing, in some cases, and just because this week I had a lot of contact with performing arts organizations in particular, so that's present for me, but some of, some of the, the sharpest performing arts organizations are thinking about, you know, what is the connection of virtual participation to live engagement? You know, what is that spectrum? Is there a bridge there? there's perhaps more nimbleness and flexibility around understanding what could be an arts venue. You know, programming that's happening maybe not in the main physical presentation venue that they're used to working in, but more programming happening in communities in what one might think of as unconventional settings, let's say. So there's this explosion of ideas that are not limited by some of the rules that we felt we had to abide by before. I mean, you see it in many, this is not necessarily the arts as performing arts or visual arts, but even if you look in cities and and how restaurants have reimagined their spaces to include outdoor spaces, 
then some of that people have held on to that, right, without the necessity to conform to a health code anymore. But they figured out, oh, this is valuable in a way that I didn't understand before. Thanks very much to Chris Chermak, who was speaking to Dr. Maria Rosario Jackson. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. And of course, tomorrow, uh, Tyler Brule and Emma Nelson here for Monocle on Sunday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>